Welcome, you're listening to the Media Talk 101 podcast. Media Talk 101 is a nonprofit ministry dedicated to teaching media discernment in the light of following Christ. Visit mediatalk101.org for helpful articles, videos, and other resources, including our award-winning documentary, Captivated, Finding Freedom in a Media Captive Culture. I'm Philip Telfer, founder and director of Media Talk 101 and co-host for this podcast, and I'm back in the studio with friend and co-host Rhett Simpkins, and actually we didn't have to come back from very far because (laughs) uh, we just stayed sitting in our seats after our last podcast recording and decided we'd keep going. So this is a continuation, uh, this is part two, on our review of Video Games, the movie. So where did we leave off, Rhett? We left off with a couple quotes about uh, religious experience of, you know, video games and evangelizing games. And uh, you brought up a quote from the um, one of the co-founders of Atari about everybody having fun and everyone having a smile on their face regarding video games. Yeah, and just living their life in a very power, very, very, very powerful way. And if, for our podcast listeners, if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to our series called The Counterfeit Life, I want to encourage you to go back through our archives and you can uh, see wh- where we talk about what does it mean to live life to its fullest and where do you get your definition of life to its fullest? Because definitions do matter. And Jesus said, I have come in order that you might have life, life in all of its fullness. So we know that that Jesus has, has come to, to uh, allow us to truly experience what life is to the fullest. But before he said that, he also said there was a thief who comes only in order to steal, kill, and to destroy. And so there is a counterfeit to, to life to its fullest. And that quote by Nolan Bushnell, to me, smacks of, of a counterfeit. You know, this is not the real deal. So let's let's continue on, Rhett, in our uh, assessment of Video Games the Movie. Once again, it was a one-hour and 45-minute documentary. If you're uh, jumping into this midway, you probably want to wa- listen to part one. And as this documentary continued on, one of the... Uh, video game enthusiasts that they were interviewing was talking about the the kind of the geek culture and how you know they kind of felt looked down upon for being video gamers but now they've developed this industry and I'll quote he says we've built our own world and that world is so awesome uh, that in this and about this culture here I'm paraphrasing a little bit but uh, he says this culture that's so awesome that people couldn't deny it, could not help but be seduced by it. So that's, you know, that's kind of the attitude. And what really what really kind of shocked me is, you know, I, I played video games growing up, and we didn't know what geeks or nerds were, you know, and it wasn't really a geeky or a nerd kind of thing. So I wasn't quite sure I was getting this whole thing, like this is some, somehow, you know, the nerds are are rising up and we're creating this awesome world. I I think that in general, you know, kids have been enthusiastic about video games. Parents have been enthusiastic about them because it keeps the kids occupied. And that as those children got older, they continued to be enthusiastic about the video games because it was a part of their lifestyle and culture. And, uh, but, you know, if they feel like there's something more 
in there culturally, but I, I just, maybe I'm just ignorant of that. But uh, Rhett, what's your take? I mean, you're, you're a generation uh, younger than I am. Is, is there something I'm missing here? Well, I, I you know, thinking back about high school and in those years, I remember it kind of having those tones, you know, everybody played video games, but it seemed like uh, the difference was um, there were kids who didn't have real social interaction with other people and they only played video games. And so that may be what they're referring to there. People that uh, at the time may have been more of a niche thing. And now that video games are just embraced, you know, more so than they were, maybe, maybe they're saying, uh, we have won, you know, I don't know. Well, that's good. Actually, that's very insightful. I wish they would have interviewed you for this documentary. (laughs) I would, I would have learned something because that was something that I'm, I'm thinking, I don't get this, you know, because everybody played video games, but you know, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, we're talking about apples and oranges here. Uh, we're not talking about just, uh, you know, the average video game player, but now a whole culture of hardcore gamers mm-hmm. or, or people that were so absorbed in them either. And and, and I suppose it would be interesting, you know, and I, to me it would be interesting in a documentary to at least explore this direction. It, is the, Do they gravitate towards becoming hardcore gamers because they're socially awkward and and it it fits it it fits them you know or their unique personalities or is it be, are they socially awkward because they have played these games and that's all they do and they're not interacting and they're not doing real things they're not out in the park you know mm-hmm. throwing the frisbee or playing ball or or I don't know you know yeah. but those are those are the things that interest me those are the things I would love to see explored uh, you went into greater depth than they did just asking that question. But this brings us to a huge crossroads in this documentary. In my notes, I have one hour, four minutes is is uh, where we're at. So we're more than halfway through the documentary when we have the first mention of video game violence. So, the, you know, now let me say that not only is this the first mention, but literally... There was less than one minute of chopped up sound bites or video bites from newsreels. About 45 seconds total. And then the defense begins. Yep. <laughs> Did you notice that? Was yes, it just me? Was it just me? I'm thinking, okay, 45 seconds of just these little clips, some of them really outdated for one, you know, almost caricatured. And then the de- defense begins. And, you know, so the, the, the interesting is what, they, what, what their defense was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, one, of the, one of the shocking ones was one of the interviews. The, the guy says, the media is the problem by focusing on a few titles defining uh, in consumers mind and and before i was i was writing this quote down because it interested me but i i couldn't even finish because the thing i had to stop in my tracks there so he said the the media is the problem so i'm i'm assuming he's talking about news media uh, by focusing on a few titles that are defining in consumers mind and so this is when i i came to a halt and i said wait a minute. wait 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 
you guys have just shown us earlier in your documentary that the video game industry is enormous. It's huge. It's a $24 billion industry. So what do you care about? I mean, what has been defined in consumers' minds obviously hasn't been affected by a few news reports mm-hmm. or, or media stories about violence in video games or or whatever other concern. Like my greater concerns is the de- uh, child development and uh, the you know some of the studies that are coming out uh, through in neuroscience studies. These are very intriguing. So that just shocked me. So let's blame the media. Let's blame news media. That's the problem. Well, obviously it's not a problem because their industry is bigger than music and their industry is bigger than movies. And this actually, and this is one of the other defenses was about parents getting upset about violence in video games. And this is where the person they were interviewing says, you know, this is not the video game industry's problem. It's your problem. They're your kids. You're the one leaving them alone for 10 hours a day. So basically, we're not culpable. Now, there is something that I do agree with his statement that, yes, parents are doing this. They Parents are using video games as a surrogate. They do occupy their children's time and keep them out of their hair or, you know, whatever reason they might have. So that is a reality, and it's it's an unfortunate reality. But but that's not an argument uh, for video game violence. Mm-hmm. You know that that's the point I want to make. You know you that's that's a separate subject altogether, and it becomes a straw man argument to say, well, you know, we're not really going to address video game violence. We're just going to poke our fingers at you know deadbeat dads and 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 parents who you know just let their children play video games for 10 hours a day or ignore them, you know, or abandon them for 10 hours out of the, out of every day or whatever the point he was trying to make. It was certainly not a thoughtful point about violence in video games. And another quote on the subject of violence, you know, so this is their defense against those who would say, but what about video game violence? And one of, one of their interviews said, we're just like any other industry that we have these ratings in place and there's going to be something for everybody. Now, once again, that is not helpful <laughs> in in the debate about violence. It doesn't address any real issues. Uh, it's also coming with the presupposition that violence is okay for a certain age. Sure. And this, you know, once again, they're... they're um, their arguments in defense were completely uh, ridiculous. In in fact, this whole section on video game violence in their documentary only lasts about four minutes out of an hour and 45 minute documentary. So they have 45 seconds uh, of of uh, these clips and about video game violence, and then you know about four minutes of their defense and one one of them at least slipped and i'm surprised that the the editor and the director the producer of this documentary let it slip and that was something got mentioned that they were avoiding mm. like the plague and what was that Rhett? grand theft auto 
That's right. They slipped. Someone actually mentioned it once in the whole documentary. And here's the quote uh, talking about people who who have a misunderstanding that all games are like Grand Theft Auto. So they let that slip out. What does that tell us, Rhett? Well, it tells us that, you know, it even he recognizes that Grand Theft Auto has some problems regarding violence. Okay. And it's also interesting that uh, they did avoid Grand Theft Auto like the plague because it has set video game sales records multiple times. In fact, in the in some, not all top 10 lists, but in some of the top 10 lists you can find online, uh, the Grand Theft Auto franchise occupies three or four or more of the spots in some of the most popular video games in this country. And that is something that was completely omitted. And in fact, what was what was interesting was not only so they you know they so they make this statement well, kind of then making this uh, implying that you know okay yeah there's Grand Theft Auto but other than that all the other games are are really not that bad, and they're not all like Grand Theft Auto. Well, you're right, they're not all like Grand Theft Auto. They didn't talk about other games that involve criminals. Or they didn't talk about the other games with grotesque zombies, mm. you know. They didn't uh, talk about other games that are all about just war and being a warlord. And they didn't talk about all the other games that are just about more zombies, <laughs> you know, and other criminals. And in fact, I was in the public library uh, doing some some study for my uh, sermon on Sunday and doing some writing. And I noticed on the magazine rack in the teen section, they had a gaming magazine. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to peruse this. And so I picked up the gaming magazine and, and you know what? I couldn't hardly turn to a page without being accosted with horrific screenshots of Mm. zombies (laughs) and just gross, disgusting. Uh, You know, I'm thinking, okay, but, but that's also something they really avoided in this documentary. They, they, they really were somewhat careful to put a good face on video games and not really to uncover uh, the the grotesqueness the um, a lot of the a lot of the distasteful elements you know for those who who are concerned about these things that are so common you know if you go to, to any video game website that and for the video game enthusiasts and you just begin to look at screenshots from video games i mean i don't know unless you're desensitized i would think that the average person who still has their their conscience somewhat tuned to right and wrong uh could not walk away from that without your stomach becoming sick you know of of the stuff at least that's my response to it and there's you know there was a really ridiculous argument against causal claims but once again not really dealing with the real issues now certainly i have been vocal uh not only in this podcast but in my in my teaching and even on the radio when being interviewed you know people always want to link when it when it whether it's a school shooting uh like the most recent one sandy hook i was invited to be on a radio show and they wanted to talk about violence in video games and of course what they were looking for was a a um a sensationalistic approach 
you know, they were looking for me to get on and say, oh, you know, this is certainly, this this guy went up and shot up the school of elementary kids, certainly because he played violent video games. But I didn't say that because it's not a true statement, you know, and that's not what I, you know, I'm not looking to sensationalize a school shooting. And thankfully, when you do look at the research and the studies that for the number of 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 children and adults playing these violent video games, first first person shooter games and, and others like it, uh, that we don't have an equivalent, you know, of of these people going out and committing these crimes. The problem is is that that's all you're focusing on. So if that's what the argument is going to be, well these games are okay because you know, ninety nine percent of kids who to play these violent video games, or maybe it's even ninety nine point nine percent whatever the number is, you know, this, the argument kind of goes like this. Well, they don't go out and become murderers. They don't go murder innocent people. So therefore, these games are okay. Well, the problem with that argument is it doesn't address any other possible factors about being desensitized, becoming numb to real life violence, to becoming, uh, you know, some of the studies have shown uh, children who, who, even when it comes to television violence become more fearful of the of the real world they think that the world is is uh, uh, more dangerous than it than it actually is they uh, are desensitized to to real life violence they become less empathetic you know towards people who have suffered from violence there there's a string of things and studies that have been done on violence in in media and entertainment so it completely disregards that so certainly those young people or anybody that goes in and, and does a horrific crime like, like shooting a bunch of innocent people in a school, the, the cause alone is not video games. I don't believe that. I believe there's other factors. And, and if you look at in these stories, there are, are multiple factors in all of these. But we can say this uh, pretty confidently is that as far as I, under, as far as I know, and I could be wrong. Maybe there are some examples that I'm not aware of. But in all of the more recent current examples, all of these uh, violent murderers played violent video games. So that was certainly a factor. You know, there's certainly something there that you cannot just write off. Was it the only factor? No, I don't believe so. But was it a factor? Uh, it's, it's hard to dismiss. So, so that's one of the things where, where in this, uh, this documentary, they really didn't deal with the real issue or any studies, just they haphazardly deny that anyone has done any serious studies worth informing the public on. That's the attitude of this documentary, which I thought was a shame. It was very shameful, you know, to, to just disregard the fact that there are quite a bit of studies and you, and am I to believe them just because they say so and because they have... Uh, shallow uh, little quips that uh, will make their buddies go, ha ha, yeah, uh -huh. you get them, you know, <laughs> but not really, not really do anything for real dialogue or, or learning anything. So now, now let's go from bad to utterly ridiculous. You ready for this, Rhett? Uh huh. Okay. Arguments for video game violence. All right. Here it is. I quote, Cain didn't kill Abel with a Game Boy. Genghis Khan 
didn't have an Xbox Live account. And Hitler didn't play Crash Bandicoot. So there you have it, Rhett. If you're not convinced now, you should be convinced that video game violence is completely safe and okay. Because, after all, Hitler didn't play Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> so, do you feel enlightened? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, neither was I. No, I wasn't enlightened. And now, now this is, uh, to their, you know, well, I don't want to give them any credit on this one. I'll just say that I have also made not this kind of statement in promoting video game violence. I have made statements that sound somewhat similar by saying that before there were video games and before there was television and movies and, and other violent electronic media out there, there was already a problem with with violence in the world. And that does go back to Cain and Abel. But it the point that I make by that is that there is a problem. Violence is a problem. It was a problem when Cain killed Abel. And this is not the point that the person being interviewed was making in this documentary. They were disregarding that violence is a problem at all. Uh, you know, so, you know, it was it was just kind of laughing off the whole thing. And to me, very, very haphazard. And we know that Cain didn't kill Abel with a Game Boy, but we do know that Cain killed Abel because sin was crouching at the door and he had murderous thoughts in his heart. He had anger and hatred towards his brother. And that when, when unchecked, that led to the actual act of murder because he, he was fostering hatred and anger in his heart. And that is a real serious issue and something that we need to take seriously and, and also video games uh, factor in uh, to people's lives. So this was, this was not deep, thoughtful, scientific comments that are convincing of, of anything. You know, they were just a bunch of lame arguments that avoid any real discussion about violence. And here's here's the here's the height of it all. You ready for this one? Yep. <laughs> Another palm to the forehead when I saw this. I just couldn't believe it. So here they're interviewing a man and he says this. I don't believe video games are murder simulators. <laughs> what are so, what are they? So so okay, let's 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 analyze this. So you have video games, numerous video games, where in the video game you are simulating <laughs> murdering someone. Okay? That's that's an undeniable fact. You know? Yeah. <laughs> These games. So I think what he meant to say, uh, but he didn't say, you know, I think what he was what he was trying to say was I don't believe that murder simulators result in real life murder. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's probably what he meant. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But to say that I don't believe video games are murder simulators is completely ludicrous. Because if you're murdering someone in the game, it is a simulator. And let's hope that it doesn't play out in, in real life. But it's it's stupid to deny that it's not a it's it's not a murder simulator when it is, and he didn't stop there. 
So this is the this is the thing that just blew my mind. He's he went on after that to say the statistics prove it is exactly the opposite. <laughs> I'm Crazy. going like really what statistics are out there? Yeah, so wait, someone, show them to us. So someone has gone out and done a study uh, on all of the video games that simulate murder, and and somehow out of that study has come a statistic that says that all of these games that simulate murder actually don't simulate murder. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. But of course, they want us to suspend our disbelief. And that's the goal of video games. And I guess that's the goal of this documentary as well, is to suspend our disbelief. I really don't believe that. And it was really, uh, you know, it's, I have to say that as far as the the uh, editing and production and writing of this documentary, you know, when you when you're going through interviews, you know, you as the director, you have to look at everything and say, you know what, can, do I stand behind this statement? You know, because if I can't stand behind it, I don't, I don't have to have it in my documentary. But obviously, the director stands behind that statement by allowing it to to make it to the screen. Because it's uh, it's but it it shows how shallow the thinking is on this this subject. Another uh, another interesting quote from one of their interviews says it's it's about imagination and invention and a connection to a world, and it doesn't have these big trappings that people apply to them. <laughs> and I'm like, so I'm supposed to believe that because you say so? Uh huh. And and that's that's the tone of this documentary we're supposed to believe it because they say so and all right well you know what that's just a bunch of opinions and everybody has a right to their opinion but but i don't have to suspend mine you know or even deeper thinking than just shallow opinions but they have hope so this is the hope for the video game enthusiasts who don't like anyone challenging violence in video games or or any other negative element that is uh, put forth in video games. So here it is. It says, it's a problem that's just going to naturally uh, evolve away, and we just have to defend the industry until that evolution happens. Hmm. <laughs> so now, Rhett, I don't know. What you th- what you think about that statement? What do you think about that statement? So the the problem of people kind of confronting video game violence or having anything negative to say about video games, this problem is just going to naturally evolve away, and and that they just need to defend the industry until that evolution happens. I mean, it's almost like they're they're agreeing that there is a problem, but they're denying it anyway, and that they're just going to stand behind it with no real reason, but defend it until their opponents have given up. Yep. Well, this is going to this going to open up your your mind to to some uh, a really I believe profound thought for these uh people who made this documentary. And maybe if they're listening to this it'll open up their minds. So, I'll I'll tell you the biggest problem with that statement is it's is how hypocritical it is. I'll tell you why this is a big hypocritical statement with a capital H and all the other letters in hypocritical capitalized with some exclamation points at the end. So you get it. Big, gigantic. In fact, we could fly a plane with one of those banners behind it with the big words, you 
hypocrites, <laughs> okay? You know what? They, people like to poke their fingers at Christians and, and throw around hypocrites, but you know what? When I see hypocrisy like this that is so blatant, so let me, let me give the quote one more time. It's a problem that's just going to naturally evolve away, and we just have to defend the industry until that evolution happens. That's in the context of people in opposition, not to these as individual people who have, a, have the choice to choose whether they're going to play violent video games or not, but to calling the industry to account on the content that they're putting. Now, what they are defending here, that they want people to stop uh, confronting they want this to evolve away, is the is opposition. But what are the games that they're playing? What are they captivated with and immersed in for hours and hours and hours of gameplay? What are the stories that they are engrossed with? Opposition. Opposition. <laughs> That's what drives their gameplay. Look at all these games. It's about battles. It's about whether it's them fighting aliens or they being the alien fighting others or being zombies or being criminals opposing justice or whatever it is. All of these. So, so if they really believe this, that any kind of opposition needs to just evolve away, then their hypocritical uh, philosophy there really ought to manifest first in the games that they're developing. So why don't they develop a game where there is no opposition? Where there's nothing really confronting anything. And guess what? The industry would tank. Yep. It, it, would be, it wouldn't be very exciting, would it? You know, so, what, so they're basically saying, we want a virtual world where we can combat others, where we can be the bullies, where we can uh, do what we want to do. But in the real world, don't you dare, you know, oppose us. Hmm. Hypocritical with a capital H. Exclamation points. We can put it on a banner. Fly it around behind an airplane. So that was, you can tell that statement really frustrated me to no end. Okay, and we get to one hour, seven minutes and 49 seconds in this documentary. Uh, once again, the whole section on violence started at one hour and four minutes. So we have just a little under four minutes dealing with this in such nonsense. And then they move on. And we're back through the timeline again a fourth time to an analogy that's going to just make us all feel warm and fuzzy. And we're just all going to love video games if, we, if we're inclined not to be in love with video games, even though this documentary by this time is clearly uh, just a big love fest for video games. So, um, so if you're not joining the love fest, you know, this certainly, when you get to one hour and eight minutes, you know, you might be won over. And that's the analogy of the campfire. Tell us about the campfire, Rhett. <laughs> So they're talking about telling stories around a campfire and how video games have become that. And now instead of you know, being with people and telling a story, you're telling a story through the video game. Okay, so this is the analogy. So for, th yeah, thousands and thousands of years now, so we got 6,000 years of history uh, of man being on the earth and, and, the, and the practice of being around a campfire telling stories. No, okay. 
We agree with that. But is this an accurate uh, analogy for video games today? And what they were trying to say was, well, these stories were to suspend disbelief. Well, first of all, that is not correct. Mm-hmm. Because that is not what all stories were about. And in fact, the time around the campfire were to tell oftentimes real stories, real history, to make sure that it was ingrained in the next generation, to help them understand issues. It would also be a place for news, for sharing about real events, you know. So was there was there the occasional fictional story for entertainment? Probably. I don't know, you know, but certainly that was not the focus of people being around a campfire to suspend disbelief. But that, you know, because they said, oh, this goes all the way back, you know, all throughout history, you know, go, we just go back to ancient man and, and you have the, you have campfires and people sitting around the campfire to suspend disbelief. And that's once again, another very, very broad brush, uh, ridiculous statement. And you know, they make the point, you know, so what's wrong with uh, suspending disbelief for, for a few minutes? You know, we're not talking about a, we're not talking about a few minutes. You know, we're talking about, so, so let's, let's just for the sake of the argument, let's say, okay, let's say they actually were coming around the campfire to suspend disbelief for, for a time to, you know, escape the, the treadmill of life and to, you know, be immersed in something outside of themselves, you know, for a little time of, of entertainment around the campfire. So, so let's just say, which is not uh, the actual facts about being around a campfire, but let's just give them that for the sake of the argument. So we're just going to... Uh, and do you think that in times past that they would suspend this disbelief for hours and hours on end without someone putting up a stink. <laughs> you know, no, they wouldn't because there was real life to be lived. There were real chores to be done. There were real things happening. There were real battles to be faced. There were real animals to be hunted. There were real skins to be skinned, real clothing to be made, real families to be raised. All of these things are pressing. And uh, you know what? You just didn't have the luxury of suspending disbelief for hours and hours and hours on end. You would have... Uh, so once again, another really lame analogy. And and certainly this is what is driving our culture today. We, we live in an entertainment-driven culture. And people do want to uh, lose themselves in a world, to escape into another world, to, to live the dream, you know. So this, this suspension of disbelief is what... Uh, I'm going to close the the this podcast with from a, a spiritual perspective, but not yet because we still have a, a few more things to say. Not not too many more things, but uh, there's a few more quotes I want to address in the documentary. So they they close this whole campfire theme with you know good stories help us grow. They we aspire to greater things. It's just that this new campfire of the video games is just a little bit brighter. Than the than the old one, so another uh, as they moved on, as they tend to do in this documentary, I thought it was interesting that one of the one of the people being interviewed in regard to the production of video games, uh, 
uh, stated that a lot of these games take are the equivalent of 1,000 man-years of programming and artwork and design. So I know that when you and I talked about this before, that was one thing that you mentioned about uh, what was your what was your impression when you th- thought about the production side of these video games? I guess, well, first of all, I haven't played video games in years, so I hadn't seen some of the, the newer imagery. But then when I saw all of what it took to make that happen, I was kind of blown away. They show scenes of this big office building with cubicles and tons and tons of screens. And I was just like, man, there's so many people involved in this. It just, I didn't realize that before. Yeah. Literally hundreds of people working on a single game. As, as this one said, a thousand man years in some of the in cases of programming and artwork and design. Uh, one of them was quoted by saying it's like making a movie times a thousand in regard to just technically what has to go into it to bring it together. And of course, this is not designing Pac-Man. You know, Mm -hmm. this is not asteroids. These are building worlds and characters and uh, this whole new level of gaming, of immersion and story. So, and this was followed up, by the way, with another, yet another uh, sequence of just B-roll and music. So essentially another music video that we had to endure and uh, so, and it went back to the, the, what's the future of gaming? So this time it went back through the timeline and then it went forward. And they once again talked about virtual reality as being what's, where it's all going. That's the future. They talked about being a meaningful art form and uh, this idea of interactive, like an interactive movies. Now here is a very troubling quote I think video games in the next 30 to 40 years are going to be unimaginable where you can't tell fantasy from reality and you can live the dream that you've always wanted to live. Another one said, and these are kind of some of their closing statements, you know, these, this wrapping up the documentary. We did the same thing and captivated. I think our closing statements were a little more thoughtful, but here are some of theirs. He says, one of them said, that's the end goal, to be as much like real life as possible. But that's not real life. (laughs) Well, there is such a thing called real life, you know, and it is accessible. It doesn't have to be, you know, sure, it takes a little, you know, you do have to work at at, uh, real life. But um, so, yeah, here's another one. Uh, Another quote, couldn't the whole world just be digitized and that make it easier, safer and better place? I could see us getting there. <laughs> so so we want the world to be digitized because it'll be a safer, better place. But once again, these are the game developers themselves speaking. And what kind of worlds are they creating? So once again, another big, gigantic, hypocritical statement. Are they, are they building worlds where these worlds are safer, better places to live? No. In fact, as I've watched this industry develop and the games develop, they get darker and uglier, and and uh, seemingly more evil and grotesque. That's the worlds that they're creating, and so once again, hypo- hypocrisy with a capital H. The worlds they're creating are not safe places, especially if they were transferred to reality. Could you imagine if the real world was like the worlds 
that they're creating. Lord help us. I mean, this would this would be uh, worse. I mean, the world is bad enough as it is, but but certainly if if those lines were blurred between the worlds that they're creating and the real world, and it, basically what they're saying, Rhett, is we want to do whatever we want to do without the consequences, and we want to build a world. You know, it's it's like you know, it's it's a way to be a god-like character in your you know to to first of all write out any accountability to the God of the universe uh, and then to create your own. But that's what mankind has been doing. This is this is simply idolatry, uh, you know, 2.0. This is just the new, newest, latest version of mankind's idolatry. And then the documentary closes with almost six minutes of more B-roll and music. So... Any final thoughts, Rhett, before I uh, uh, open up some scripture here and and give kind of my final thoughts? Yeah, um, for I our actually, on the note of the six minutes of more B-roll, it was, uh, it seemed to me, and I didn't, I've not played most of those games, or I don't know if any of them, but uh, it seemed to me that it was these feel-good moments of the game where the characters in the game are embracing, looking over, uh, you know, at sunsets as if, you know, the world is good and better. Um, so, you know, it seemed like he closed out the documentary with uh, that feel good about video games, but it's not really um, a real glimpse at those games in reality. Yeah, it was yeah, it wasn't a fair sampling. They're not they're not showing pictures of mutilated zombies yeah. or people being blown to pieces in blood and gore or you know. Uh, Grand Theft Auto and and some of the horrific things of people being bludgeoned to death and just that was certainly not what they presented and uh, so that was the skew that they chose to to put the spin that they chose to put on this but let me uh, just to be fair here you know the someone may, maybe a video game enthusiast is listening to this and say yeah this is what I expect from Media Talk 101 this is what I would anticipate from Philip Telfer or Rhett Simpkins uh, critiquing a, a movie uh, that is endorsing video games. So, you know, where some would maybe accuse us of being just completely skewed in our ability to critique thoughtfully a film like this. Well, if there are any of those skeptics listening, Rhett, why don't you share... some snippets of reviews from secular uh, people. And these are, these would be uh, people that review movies all the time from a a non-Christian worldview. And I thought it was interesting. I did not search for uh, reviews on this film until after I had done my own review. And I was kind of wondering, well, I wonder what other people will say about this. Because in my opinion, this was a really poorly done documentary, not just because of the ridiculous content in it, but um, but but also because of that. So, Rhett, what did you find in some of these, in a search for reviews on Video Games, the movie? Okay, yeah, I have a, a couple quotes here. Here's one from Jeanette Ketsolis from the New York Times. She said, regarding uh, this movie, 
unfocused and, and repetitive this feature-length commercial by Jeremy Sneed uses a muddled timeline and bargain basement graphics to produce a horn-tooting, aren't-games-awesome tone. Whoa. <laughs> wow. That's not Media Talk 101. No, that's the New York Times. Here's one from the Los Angeles Times by Robert Abil. It's a love fest in which critics' voices and debate are simply absent, and the only talking space is wonder, nostalgia, and excitement for the future. Whoa. That's not a real great... So how about another one? You got any more there? Okay, here's one from uh, RogerEbert.com. Video Games the Movie doesn't just preach to the choir... It puts that choir on a pedestal and costumes it in golden robes. Here's here's one here's one that I thought was interesting. You'd have to be a real knob to glean anything substantial from this superficial, haphazardly structured primer on video game history. Wow. <laughs> here's one more from Justin Clark who wrote Jeremy Sneed's doc comes off more as a commercial for a grand overarching product that isn't finished being developed. Hmm. And there are quite a few other inter- uh, extended reviews of this film, very few of them positive. And we join that, the ranks of those. You know, in the last, uh, I've been teaching through on Sundays uh, the book of Second Corinthians, and the last couple of weeks I've been teaching out of, of chapter 4. And I was, as I was meditating on this, I think that there are a couple of things I want to point out that, that really... Um, connect with with this topic and it let me just read the first few verses uh in chapter four paul writes therefore since we have this ministry and that's a reference to chapter three where he's talking about the ministry of the new covenant you know so being a minister of the new covenant as we have received mercy we do not lose heart and that's also a theme of this chapter four not losing heart but it's not losing heart about uh, I mean, it could apply to many different things, but in the context, what he's talking about is not losing heart in sharing the gospel and not losing the heart in the persecution you suffer when sharing the gospel, when being a minister of the new covenant. But he says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness nor or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, this idea of renouncing things hidden of shame, he's not necessarily talking about shameful, immoral behavior there, because that's not the context of this chapter. And it's not the context what, if you look at those other things that he's saying, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but this manifestation of truth. So he's saying that I'm, that he says, we're not going to, we're going to renounce being, uh, being ashamed of the gospel, you know, Paul said in, in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Or he might even be saying, we're going to renounce, um, you know, avoiding bringing things to light because other people try to put us to shame. So we're afraid of being shamed by others. So therefore, we're not going to speak what's true. And we're not to declare to this generation or to, as he says here, um, commend ourselves to every man's conscience. You see, the conscience is that uh, what what God has given us to discern between what's right and what's wrong, and that you know that itself is a testimony of a Creator, of of someone who has established a universal 
right and a, and a universal wrong. And that's what people are trying to avoid. You know, when in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is writing about man's turning away from God, it, it doesn't say that he, he gets to a point where it says he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So he knows the truth. It's been revealed to him. There's a sense that God has given him. Even in creation itself, mankind understands that there is a creator. But the only way that, that he can try to write God out of the story is to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And that's what God has called us to do, is to uh, commend ourselves to every man's conscience, to be a witness in our generation, to say, you know what? We're not going to let you off the hook. We're, gonna, we're going to be a voice in this generation that continues to call out to this generation that there is a God, there is a creator, and, and he has defined right and wrong. And he has also made a way for the, all of us who fall into the wrong and evil category to be reconciled to himself. And so there is a battle that is going on for hearts and minds. And Paul says in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now this, once again, for those who are familiar with 2 Corinthians, goes back, it's a reference to, to he was talking about veils in, in chapters 2 and, and 3 and, and talking about uh, things that are veiled and things that are unveiled in, in relation to the gospel. And Paul's not saying that, well, it's just hopeless. There's people who have a veil over their hearts and, and therefore, uh, what can we do? Because he goes on in verse 4, he says, in whose case? What? What case is he talking about? The case of whose, the people whose minds are and their hearts are veiled to the gospel. They're, they're perishing because of this veil. It says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God or the glory of God. You see, video games very much play into the hand of the enemy to to continue to blind the world uh, to reality because by their own admission, it is an escape from the realities of the world. It is suspending disbelief. But in that process, one of the things I've contemplated a lot, our problem with our entertainment-driven culture, whether it's video games or movies or the internet, uh, is that we have become trained you know, we, we have, it's a generation that have been trained to believe that what they see is real and true. In in most cases, what what you're seeing is not real and it's not true. And that's the case of many of these video games. What they're what you're as you suspend your disbelief, you enter into a world that is not real. It's not true. But yet they aspire to blur that line. They want that line to be so blurred that they can no longer tell the difference between fantasy and reality. They, they want fantasy to become reality. That's the goal. You know, and that's the and that's really what idolatry is, because idols are really nothing. There are really no other gods. There's only one God. But but man's fantasy world of creating gods and 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 creating other religions, you know, continue you know, they have to suspend their their you know, they, they're trying to avoid God. Uh but in verse 5, Paul says, But we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, 
is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, Paul didn't lose heart in trying to reach his generation with the gospel, even though their minds were veiled, because his heart was veiled, his eyes were veiled, he was blinded by Satan. He was he, he rejected the gospel, but eventually light shone through. And so that's why he doesn't lose heart. And that's why at Media Talk 101, we're not going to lose heart in proclaiming what's true. Because there was a time when my mind was darkened and I was deceived and I was living the counterfeit life. And God, God by his grace, shone the light of Christ into my heart and mind and, I, and it was illuminated. You know, my life was, and I began to discover that there was real life to be lived in Christ. And that's what, what I, why personally, I am so frustrated with the enthusiasm, even within, among Christians for video games today. And it's not just it's not just the Grand Theft Autos that I'm concerned about. Actually, one of the one of the games that has caused great concern among families today is is shocking. It's a it's a silly game called Minecraft. You know, so we're not talking about Grand Theft Auto. We're talking about something that's seemingly uh, innocent, and and yet uh, the problems that it's causing in in children and homes is this not only this false sense of accomplishment, but also these behaviors that appear to be. Uh, addictions, you know, to these things where it's causing conflict in the home when there's time restraints or limitations put on the game. Uh, so, so there's just one example, but my, my, once again, my frustration is that this is just one more example, probably one of the, one of the big stumbling blocks and traps that the enemy has set for our generation to continue to immerse themselves in worlds where they, where they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And our responsibility as Christians in our generation is to shine the light. And I'll close with this one verse, Rhett, because this is how we know that Paul uh, didn't adhere to any idea that that somehow this was a hopeless case because they were the, the gospel was veiled to those who are perishing. And so if you turn to Acts chapter 26, we have the testimony of Paul to King Agrippa and he was sharing his testimony and this is we we actually get a little information that he doesn't share in all of the other accounts of his testimony and it's actually words from Jesus himself and in verse 15 he says and I said who art thou Lord and the Lord said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but arise and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now notice this, Rhett, and this is what I want our podcast listeners to focus in on, the instructions of Jesus to, to Saul here, who would eventually be known as Paul, and what God was calling him to do as a minister. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul understood from the very beginning that God was calling him to a ministry that would go out and battle the darkness by exposing people to the light and seeing their eyes opened 
to, to the truth of the gospel. And so we, that's what our heart is. That's why Media Talk 101, our slogan is, is teaching media discernment in the light of following Christ. You've been listening to the Media Talk 101 podcast. Visit mediatalk101.org for helpful articles, videos, and other resources. Click on the audio tab to get a free download of Philip's audiobook, What Wouldn't Jesus Do? Media Choices in the Light of Following Christ. And if you haven't seen our award-winning documentary, Captivated, Finding Freedom in a Media Captive Culture, be sure to order your copy today. Parents Television Council calls it deft and powerful, and numerous moms, dads, and pastors say it's a must-watch for every Christian family and church. If you have a question or a topic you would like to have discussed on this program, please send an email to podcast at mediatalk101.org.